Well, this morning I was thinking about how sometimes there are, there are times in our lives we find ourselves so wrapped up in things or systems or moments that we're not sure what to do with them. And so here's how I would articulate this in ways, right? Um, especially if you're a student right now, you get this. Your life is marked by the school year. It is, right? Even a new year can happen on the calendar. Like, January 1st comes, and it doesn't feel like a new year because that's not a new year for you. That doesn't start until the fall, right? This is just a continuation of the same year you've been in. And the truth is, it's not just students who deal with that. It's parents and, honestly, grandparents. And the truth is, it's probably the church and almost every other place because we seem to live by that system of the world, that that marks time more so than December 31st and January 1st. Or maybe, thought differently, maybe we think about it this way. Um, none of us can really imagine a world where on April 15th we don't have to pay our taxes. I mean, you can choose not to pay your taxes on April 15th, but there will be repercussions for that. Um, you'll either owe lots more money or you'll find yourself in jail, right? Like, that's what happens. It's a system in which we live that you, it's hard to imagine ourselves apart from that particular system. And so the truth is, we've been looking, we'll continue to look today at the book of Revelation. And that's maybe a helpful picture for us, is what might happen, right? We, we know the way the world is, but what if there was a way the world could be? What if there was a way for us to separate ourselves from what is in such a way that we could see the world differently? What if the point of the book of Revelation is this, that God is going to redeem and restore and make all things new? What if there is hope in the midst of difficult circumstances and difficult times? And what if God's people can find hope no matter what's going on in the world or the system in which they're in? And what if the way the world is is not the way the world always will be? And so we've been summarizing kind of this book that's been walking through. And it's a lot, right? Today we'll be in chapters 10 to 15. And so trying to get through as much as we can. Just to remind you, on Sunday mornings at 9.15, if you want to come and talk about the previous week's text, there's a group of us that gather in the conference room outside the main office. And so you can come and talk about that, and we can wrestle through some of this together. Um, but, but chapter 1, we looked at this idea that, that Revelation is an apocalyptic book, and we're to look at it with an apocalyptic lens. And so here's a helpful definition that I think might be helpful. And so here's Ben Witherington's definition for us. He says this, This literature is minority literature, written in coded language to comfort a group of believers undergoing some sort of crisis. Present mundane reality is interpreted in light of both the supernatural world and the future. In other words, it's to paint a picture that we can maybe look at. And we looked in chapters 2 and 3. We spent seven weeks looking at the seven churches that the book of Revelation is addressed to. It's written to them. It was written to them for their everyday life. And we talked about chapters 4 and 5. And this was kind of a unique thing, like the kind of the lens change, right? We use the analogy that might be helpful again. Um, think in terms of if you've seen the Chronicles of Narnia, the movie The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, or read the books. There's this moment where Lucy goes into the wardrobe. And she happens to enter into Narnia, this new place, but yet she never really left the old place. And so we talked about how it's as if John doesn't really leave, but he enters into a different sphere in a realm that's connected. And so he gets to see from the perspective of the divine. And in that, we see that, that in the midst of all that's going on in the world around us, in the middle of persecution in the church, that there is one who still sits on the throne. And then we see this picture where all of creation heaven and earth, over the earth and under the earth, there is only one worthy to be worshipped, and it is God, and then it is his son who enters into the picture, and he too is worthy. 
That's the picture of four and five. And then we talked last week about chapters six through nine. And in these, we looked at the, how one of the cool things in the picture is there's a scene in chapter seven where he hears 144,000, but when he looks, it's more than can be counted. He hears one thing, he looks and sees something radically different. And what's the point of that? That people come from every tribe and nation and language and background and all make up the kingdom of God. And they are marked by the Lamb. We talked last week a little bit, we might even mention today this idea that in Deuteronomy chapter 6, there's this picture of the scriptures where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. It goes on to say, Mark it on your hand and on your forehead and press it upon your children. Like the point is this. To love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength. And that is the mark of the people of God. And then we see um, in chapter 10, we kind of jump back out of Narnia, if you will, or out of the realm of God into like our everyday life, into the world around us. And that brings us to the perspective of where we find ourselves today. And like I said, this series, this book, this is, it's kind of weird. It's to paint pictures that are sometimes a little difficult to grasp. But at the same time, um, bear with me, because I hope at the end you'll go, oh, okay, I didn't get all of it, I got most of it, but I got the end. So bear with me today, and hopefully at the end you'll go, some of it, still confused, but I got the point. So hopefully we can do that together. Here's what we see from Revelation chapter 10, beginning in verse 8. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me once more. Go, take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. Now, I want to be fair today. Um, There are some, really in the last hundred years or so, who think this is supposed to be a historical prediction. But through most of church history, um, this has kind of been the idea that it's painting a picture of theology, of Christian theology, of how we understand God at work in the world. If you remember last week, we ended chapter 9. It ended with this. All these kind of like the plagues of Egypt had come on the people, and no one repented. Not one person repented. That was the whole point of the picture, was people like, well... All the wrath, all the worst that could come on humanity came. And people were like, yeah, so what? And we made the point. I know it's hard for us to imagine a world where every decision we make keeps leading to more and more brokenness. We can't imagine, like, continuing to do that. And then, if we're honest, we look at the world around us, and we know many of us continue to make poor decisions that lead to more and more brokenness. And so we see this picture. It's kind of a, a painting, if you will, of some Old Testament taught in Ezekiel chapter 3, he eats a scroll. I know, it's a weird thing. Why would you eat a scroll? Um, and here's what's the point of this. Words matter. But more so than words mattering, what we embody, what we eat, who we become matters more. So the point of John here is this. John was initially just writing down a story, but now he enters into the story. He takes in the very words of God And he is to embody the message, to be a sharer of the message. So it's not just that our words, but who we are and what we do matters. And so the scroll tastes sweet because it's God's will and God's purposes, but then it turns kind of sour. What's the point? Well, sometimes it's hard. 
Sometimes when we embrace the message of God, it becomes difficult. It's hard to live out. It's hard to embrace. As John is told, not only are you supposed to tell these words, but you're to live these words out. And sometimes to be faithful to God can be difficult. But the point for John is you are to embody and be the message. The church is to be the message. I love these words of Stanley Hauerwas. He says this, The church does not just bear the message of Christ. The church is the message of Christ. It's why in these days how we live matters. What we do, what we say, how we function, these things matter. In fact, we'll, we'll jump to chapter 11 now. And so we see um, these from the first couple of verses. Here's what it says. I was given a reading like a measuring rod. and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers, but exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the city for 42 months. It begins with this kind of weird picture, a reed like a measuring rod. You're like, what is a reed or a measuring rod? What, what do these have to do? Well, if we were to go back to Ezekiel chapter 20 or the book of Zechariah, in both those instances, the temple has been destroyed by Babylon. Right? The temple was the place where God's people went to worship. It was the center of their life. It was the place where they thought God's very presence on earth was, and it had been destroyed. And so here is what John is saying. Will you take this that they took in Ezekiel, this rod, and mark out where the walls were to go for the temple. And will you redraw the lines of what's happening? Right? And so a couple of things that might be helpful in this picture. Um, Rome, throughout this whole text, is the idea of Babylon. They're kind of synced together. It's this question of the empires of the world versus the kingdom of God. These kind of cosmic pictures of battle against things one another. But maybe, just maybe, it's possible that there's going to be a new literal temple, but maybe, just maybe, what John's trying to say is this. That the very people of God become the temple of God. It's what we find in 1 Corinthians 6. is what Jesus talks about, the resurrection of the dead. Right? There will come a day when the people of God become the very presence of God in the world. And when it seems like it has been overwhelmed and overrun and destroyed by the world around us, then God will rebuild it and make all things new. And then we see this kind of weird picture of these two witnesses in the text, right? I'm not going to go through and read it all, but there's these two witnesses. They come and they share this message. And, and most scholars would say they're probably Moses and Elijah. And if you know your Old Testament Bible, right? I'm, I know lots of scripture today. If you know your Old Testament picture, Moses was the one who led the Israelites out of Egypt. Um, he was the one who, who did that. Um, but he was also the one who wrote much of what the Old Testament, much of what we call the law, and then Elijah was considered the greatest prophet, right? There's this scene where he's on Mount Carmel, and all the prophets of Baal are there. And it says there's only a few thousand people left who are faithful to God. And there's a scene where Elijah, the one guy, takes on all the prophets of Baal, and he wins. It's like kind of this cool picture. And, and so it's the idea that he represents the fullness of the prophet. So we have the fullness of the law and the fullness of the prophet, and they come together as two witnesses. And most scholars would say... These represent the fullness of God's people, the law and the prophets. And we would say we know that as the church. And in the text, they die. But they come back to life because God breathes breath or life into them. And that's another picture that maybe you know the book of Ezekiel. And in that book, you'll see this picture where there's these dry bones. And he says Ezekiel prophesying. He's like, dude, these are dead bones. I don't know how to tell you this, but they're dead. They're not going anywhere. And he's like, just 
just teach, man. If you'll just do it, I'll breathe life. And you're like, I don't know. And so he starts doing it and the light, bones come back to life. And the point is this, that only God can breathe life into what seems to be dead. That's so what might happen if it's true for his church. So maybe here's a kind of a, a pause, if you will, in the text. So here's three things for us. Um, people of God are to eat the word. Take it in, embrace it, know it, take the scroll. That was the point of that. Number two, people are to be marked by the presence of God in the world. If you go back to chapter seven, the whole point in chapter seven was this, that, that they would be marked by the Lamb of God or Jesus. They'd be marked by Jesus. Number three, the presence of the law and the prophets come together in the body of the church. You know, like, what's the point of this? When it seemed like the two witnesses were dead, and they were as good as dead, and it had been three and a half days, that God breathed life into them. What's the point of that? Evil doesn't get the last word. Sin doesn't get the last word. Death does not get the last word. In fact, here's what we say. Jesus, the resurrected one, he gets the last word. And then there's this really cool picture that happens at the end, right? I, I think it's really cool. You might not think it's quite as cool. But at the end of chapter 11, we see this kind of picture where there are these two groups that, that there's some groups that like get destroyed. You're like, well, that doesn't sound very cool. Well, hear me out. So it says, right, that there were only 10% that were unfaithful or only 7,000 people were unfaithful who didn't repent, who didn't turn to God. Well, why is that helpful? So there's a story in the Old Testament with Abraham. Maybe you've heard of him. And it's about the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, these cities that were like really like corrupt and messed up and did all kinds of stuff that would be called evil, idolatrous, sexually immoral, you name it, they did it. Right? It made Vegas look pretty pale. That's the point. Um, and so Abraham says, well, God, I tell you what, rather than destroying the cities, what if I find 50 righteous people? And he's like, all right, if you find 50, that's fair. We'll do that. And he goes, okay, how about, well, maybe not 50. What about 40? He goes, well, all right, we'll do it for 40. He goes, okay, God, I got you at 40. How about 30? And he goes, 20. And he gets to 10. If I find 10 righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah, then the city will not be destroyed. He goes, deal. Abraham goes, he can't find 10 righteous people. So that's the one story. So hang on to that one. And then the other story is on Mount Carmel, Elijah's there, and it says only 7,000 are faithful. And all the rest are unfaithful. Why does that matter? Because in the Revelation text, it flips. Only 7,000 are unfaithful. All the rest are faithful. So these two Old Testament stories flip on their head where it seems just a small percentage of people had committed to Christ. In this picture, we see it inverts itself. And because of the faithful witness of the church, many people come to the place where they entrust their lives to God. It's a really cool picture. You're not nearly as excited as I am. Um, that's okay. I can live with that. I think it's really cool. But why does that matter for us? Because at the end of chapter 9, it wasn't the plagues or the wraths or the bowls or the trumpets that scared people into heaven, but it was the faithful witness embodied by the church that led to the transformation of people. Fear did not do it, but the faithful loving witness of the church did. Now, you should be a little more excited about that, but I'll give you that if you're not. So, Moving on, here we find from chapter 11. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, 
The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. And 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. And God's temple in heaven was opened and within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant. And there came flashes of lightning, rumbles, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a severe hailstorm. Again, apocalyptic literature, painting pictures, great things to draw our mind in. But I want to point out the best line in this whole section in verse 17. It said, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was. And most of the time, there's another line which says it is to come, but is purposely not there. The one who is and the one who was, and is not who is to come because he has come. And he is reigning even in this time. That is the point of why that is missing. That even when it feels like the world is a mess, when it feels like your life is a mess, when it feels like your family is a wreck and you don't know what to do with your job, the promise is this, that God is at work in the world, that Jesus has ultimately won. In the end, we can find peace and comfort in the midst of whatever it is we are going through. And then we jump to Revelation chapter 12, and it's kind of this, um, maybe if you're a studier of uh, like, ancient history. Maybe you've heard of Apollo, you know, like the, guy, the Greek god. You've heard of him. Uh, well, there's a story of Apollo's defeat of the dragon. He waged war on his mom, Leto, right? It's ancient story. And, and so Caesars would take that story and they'd say, well, we're like Apollo. And the dragon comes and we're going to slay the dragons. And so we're Caesar. And also you can call us God as so you can worship us. And so the cool thing that John the Revelator does, right, this is the whole point of chapter 12, he takes that picture that they would have known in the first century world where Caesar becomes the hero of the story, and he becomes the Apollo, and he says, yeah, but let me retell you that story, and here's how that story works. Um, The dragon, the evil one, does wage war, and he wages war on the child who is Christ, the one who bore him and bears him in this world, his church. The dragon could not conquer, but instead has been conquered. It's a really cool picture of taking present-day stuff. Present-day for Rome, not so much present for us. We don't really study a lot of Greek mythology, but if you did, you'd go, oh, yeah, totally see the picture he's painting with that. And that brings us to chapter 13. Again, I know some of the things can be confusing. Um, Over and over in chapter 13, we see the word authority used again and again and again. And the point of that really is actually political. That is the point in chapter 13. And so this point is referencing this kind of picture from the book of Daniel. It tells us these four beasts represent four kingdoms. And we'd say it this way, both commentators, ancient and modern, talk about the beast being the Babylonian or the Median or the Persian empires. And the fourth would signify the Greek empire of Alexander the Great. We see this kind of picture play out, this kind of weird picture of these, all these things, and we see um, kind of this mega huge version of beasts, and maybe this is helpful, so I'm quoting from someone else, like the plagues of Revelation 9 that were supersized versions of the plagues of Moses on Egypt. This new beast is not just a new animal, 
but it's the greatest combination of powers the world had ever seen. And for most commentators and for the early church, the beast was Rome. And it was oppressive. And it was big. It seemed insurmountable. And they couldn't imagine a world where Rome didn't oppress those who are followers of Jesus. They couldn't imagine. And so this kind of, um, kind of empire that exists in the world, but it's counter to the kingdom of God. The value of empire are things that we begin to recognize, right? Like you, can, you can live however you want sexually. You can do whatever you want with your money. You can do like all these things that, that we know that lead us down to all kinds of broken roads. They were all what Rome represented in terms of empire. And you can go back to Babylon or Egypt, all throughout the Old Testament. That's the point of what the pictures we see in this text. And so here's what we know in this. Um, John kind of uses a, a parody, right? A parody is a, a way we talk about, um, right? It's not the real thing, but it kind of looks like the real thing, right? Does that, that make sense? It's not the real, but it's like the, it's a really good fake. Uh, it's a parody. It's not the same thing. So the purpose of the Lamb is to set people free. The mission of the beast is to place people into deeper bondage. Rome doesn't want to set you free. Empires of the world in which we live never want to set you free. They want to mold you into the way of empire. The challenge for us as the church is to represent we are other than any other nation. This is hard for us because we all live in nations, but it's not that God doesn't love nations because that's what we see all throughout the book. He wants to redeem and restore and make all things new. And so... The most dangerous emperor of this nation was Nero. Maybe you've heard of Nero. Um, maybe, just maybe. I don't know. Um, but he was one who oppressed Christians probably the most. In fact, um, he was thought to be wounded. Right? The beast is wounded in this text. He was wounded. They thought he was going to come back to life. And this was the myth all throughout the first century. And so Craig Coaster writes these words, and they'll be on the screen so you can follow it with me. The supreme embodiment of hostility to Christians was the emperor Nero. When the finishing touches were put onto the image of the beast, Nero sat for the portrait. The end of Nero's life also gave a perverse credibility to the portrayal of a beast that was slain and yet lived. Nero killed himself by putting a dagger to his own throat, but rumors arose that Nero was still alive and in hiding, so that he would return one day to avenge his enemies. By combining the threats presented by the four empires in Daniel 7, with images reminiscent of Nero, the beast exemplifies the threats that confront the people of God in many generations. And so the dragon and the beast, they represent this kind of unholy trinity, a parody of the true trinity of God, of Father, Son, and Spirit. Right, if we go back to the Old Testament, there's this scene, right? The King Nebuchadnezzar, greatest king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, he didn't want... Jews to not worship God. That wasn't his goal. His goal was for you to not worship God first, but for you to worship him. Because if you worship him, then he didn't care if you worship God, because then you would still fit in the pattern of what he desired for you. And so the temptation of Nebuchadnezzar is the same temptation of Rome, which is the same temptation for us today. It's to compromise our worship, to put other things first, to find ourselves drawn into things all around. And so, in fact, here's what we find in this text from Revelation 13. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast. So the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads. So they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. 
This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of man. That number is 666. Um, now, this could be literal, um, but throughout much of church history, that's not been how it's been defined. It's been this kind of idea of, there's a, a thing called gematria. Maybe you've heard of it, maybe you haven't. Most people haven't, but it's how Jews would understand Hebrew language. They would give numbers to letters. Okay, bear with me. And it's why it says, calculate the number of this beast, and it's 666. Well, Neron Caesar in Hebrew gematria is 666. And so this beast probably was Nero. And so this church, first century church, when it seems like the one who's a parody of the real one who's the son of God, when Caesar says he's son of God, we know he's really not son of God. He can say it all he wants. It doesn't make it true. If we go back, remember we talked last week and a little bit today about Deuteronomy chapter 6. The great the Shema, hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. Worship the Lord of God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength. And it's right on your forehead and on your hand. Or a few weeks ago, we talked about how, especially like in Thyatira, a place where the trade guilds were big, if you weren't marked by Caesar, you couldn't buy or sell in their marketplaces. It's possible it's literal, but most would argue it's what marks our life. Are we marked by the beast or are we marked by the lamb or Jesus? Which one marks us? In fact, what we say is this, it's why the great picture in 1 Kings where Solomon has all his gold and it's the moment with Queen of Sheba and every year his gold weighs 666 talents. Every year. Either it's incredible accounting or someone's skimming off the top, right? If it's the same every year. Um, Or what we find is no matter what empires promise us, it will never be enough to fulfill us. It will never be enough to satisfy. No matter the promises of the world around us, it will never be what the kingdom of God promises us And it will never be enough. The only mark that is enough is the mark of Jesus. I love this quote by Eugene Peterson. He says this, When the summary creed, or mark, of the land beast replaces the Shema on forehead and hands, religion becomes consumption, people become gross parodies of the gospel, buying all they can to show they are blessed by God, bowing before every display of success, the buying and selling of a religion is the mark of the beast. It's the same question we asked last week. What marks our life? What's the primary mark of who we are? And this brings us to chapter 14. There are two different groups. Those who are marked by the lamb and those who are marked by the beast. And those marked by the beast are trampled like grapes. To chapter 15, last chapter of the day. I know, some of you are half asleep. I appreciate you being with us though. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations, who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name. For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. All nations will come and worship before you. Now this, Revelation 15, is a direct correlation to Exodus 15. And that's the story where Moses has led the people out of Egypt And they sing this great song about the destruction of Egypt and how they've been saved. And notice the radical transformation in Revelation 15 from Exodus 15 is this. There's not a celebration of the destruction of others, but a celebration of the restoration of all people to God. That is a pretty cool picture. 
So instead of focusing on the destruction, it's about the restoration. So I love this quote from Scott Daniels who says this. According to Revelation, God does not want the nations of the world to be lured into allying themselves with the powers of evil. But neither does he want the nations to be destroyed. Instead, God's desire is for the conversion of the nations that they join in the cosmic chorus of praise that is his will for the world. Now maybe, you're going, okay, pretty cool, great. You gave us a picture of Revelation 10 to 15, what's the point? What do we do with that? How do we understand that? Well, here's what I would say. It's the same question as last week is still for this week. What marks your life? What is the marker of your life? And then the question, if you go back to chapter 10, which is, I think the key kind of hinge chapter of this is, when he eats the scroll, the question becomes this. What do you and I embody? What do you and I embody? Or I could say it another way. You are what you eat, right? Um, so I was thinking about how I might illustrate this. A couple years ago on my birthday, my wife invited a few um, families over to our house to celebrate my birthday. Um, and so none of them knew what they were going to do. It's so the first family walks in and they give me a tub of chocolate chip cookie dough. It's great. I was like, awesome. Thank you. I appreciate that. The next family walks in and they brought two tubes of chocolate chip cookie dough. The third family walks in the door and they brought two dozen already cooked chocolate chip cookies. Now the irony is no one talked to one another. That's why it was so funny. And I had cookies for months. It was great. Um, so I'm not going to embody cookie dough and become cookie dough, right? But, but when we think about our lives, what do we embody? What do we take in? Because what we embody becomes the message that we give. It becomes who we are. And no, you're not going to become chocolate chip cookie dough. Although if I only ate that, I'd become really obese and, and have some diabetic problems, right? That would be true. But what if... What if what we embody does matter? What message do we embody? What message do we give? If we go back, right, the cool thing in chapter 11, the witnesses, they bared witness to who the Lamb of God is, and they sacrificed just like he sacrificed. They were selfless like he was selfless, and it brought about the transformation of people, and people came to repentance, and people, all the wrath, all the fear didn't do it, but man, the loving, faithful witness did. What's it look like for the church to bear loving, faithful witness? To embody the message of Jesus. And I was thinking about this this week as I was, um, I heard about and then drove by and saw. Um, there's, a, there's a church in town right now that has in their parking lot um, some tombstones. And on the tombstones, it's, they're painted with red paint to, to symbolize blood and um, and they say things like this. Um, Mommy, why wasn't it my choice? Or why did you kill me? Um, and it, there's no question what they're referencing. Um, and I, at one level, I, I get it. I, I think the heart might be in the right place, but the way in which they went about the message was wrong. I was talking to some ladies in our group this morning, and I was thinking, how, how did we articulate this? And I thought I would tell this story. Um, if we're not careful, we may have a right message, but said in such a wrong way that people can't hear our message. It's loft. So I told the story, and I'll tell it again. I didn't plan on telling it. It's not in my notes, but I just... Um, years ago, I had a professor in college. He pastored the same church for 26 years. And um, 
talked about a woman who, she was a young mom, came in one day, and, and mid to late 20s, and she was married, and, and she said, Pastor, I need to talk to you for a minute. And she came in, and, and he said, um, yeah, what's, what's going on? And, and she said, I'm, I'm stuck in a crummy marriage. He said, not stuck in a crummy marriage? Like, you know, and he said, I, I wonder if she wasn't stuck, because if you feel like you're stuck, there's no way out. But, and he said, well, you know, you, you chose to marry this man. Like, no one forced you. We don't have arranged marriages here. That's not how this works. And she goes, well, I was pregnant. He goes, again, you weren't forced to marry him. You could have had this baby on your own. He said you could have given the baby for adoption. He said you could have even had an abortion. Like, you, you had lots of options. And when he gave the last one, he said, I wasn't wanting her to do it, but just to hear, there were, you had choices. She says, no, I, I couldn't do that again. And so the pastor goes, maybe there's more to this conversation than what I initially thought. He said, I don't know what prompted me. He said, I'd say it's the work of the Spirit. I, I just asked her, I said, um, where a girl? Girl, did you did you have a name? Yeah, um, Emily. Oh, pretty name. How old did Emily be today? Six. Fun age. So tears in her eyes. Said, Pastor, do you believe do you believe my my baby's with God in heaven? He says, I think God's got a special place for your little girl. She said, Next, Pastor, this is this is why I hate church. This is why I hate coming here. Because how could I ever go to the place where I put my little girl? How could I ever go to that place? He goes, oh, honey, that's where you've got it wrong. Heaven is the place where God takes all the wrongs and makes them right. And I, I tell that story not to say we shouldn't value people at all forms of life, right? From, we talked about this last week a little bit. From, from inception to the grave and everything in between, we should be advocates for whatever looks like life. In the f- but if we're not careful... The places where we want people to go when they're hurting and wrestling and struggling are going to be the last places they go. Because that church with those signs on the street, I can guarantee you if I was hurting or suffering or wrestling, wondering about God, I would never step foot in there. But what if you and I embodied the message of Christ so much so? What if we embodied his graciousness and his love and his mercy in a way that we could extend that to others? Because what we see in Revelation chapter 9 is all the wrath of the world is not enough for people to repent. But the faithful witness in chapter 11, people come to repent. All the people we thought years and years before, right? We thought Sodom and Gomorrah, no one can repent. They all do. Only 7,000 faithful. Everyone but 7,000 are faithful, right? It flips it on its head. The faithful witness of God's people, his church. So what might happen if you and I embodied that message? What if we are what we eat? What if we embody his grace and his love and his mercy, and that becomes what defines who we are? So this morning, we'll take communion. In just a moment, we'll invite you to come up, and you'll come up these middle outside aisles, and you'll come to the front, and you'll take a piece of bread, and you'll dip it in the cup, and someone will say to you, the body and the blood of Christ. And I want to say to you, we call these sacraments, we celebrate two in our tradition, right? Communion and baptism. And we define them in this way. We say they're outward signs of an inward grace of God. That it's a symbol of the graciousness of God. And so we come to the table and go, hey, I know I'm a mess, but I need God's grace and his mercy and his love. And I need it to define my life. And so I come to the table and I dip and I go, God, it's my way of saying, God, I know who I've been is not who you've always called me to be. So forgive me. And I want to embody your message and your grace. I want to become as John is in chapter 10. I want to become 
the message for the world. Make me more like Jesus. So it's why in the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. In the same way, he took the cup and he said, this is my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink. This morning, we're invited to really kind of three things in this. To embody the message, to become the message. To be God's temple, his place where his spirit dwells in the world. And the people who share that message with others. This is what we see in Revelation 10 to 15. That we're to embody the message because we know the one who will redeem and restore and make all things new. And his church is called to bear faithful witness. And today, if you wonder if there's a God who is gracious and loving and kind. And who offers your forgiveness. But wants to redeem and restore and make you new. I say yes again and again. And the picture in Revelation is God comes and says, who you have been does not have to define who you are or who you will become for now or all eternity. We believe in a God who says who you have been does not have to be who you are. And we also know that maybe we have not done a great job of being faithful witness to Jesus. When we come to the table and say, God, will you make me more faithful to my witness so I'm going to pray, and as we pray, um, those who are helping with communion, if you'd come forward, and then we'll just have you come up the middle outside aisles and follow the row in front of you. But we'll come to the table this morning to take, because in this instance, we do want to become what we eat. We're going to partake the grace of God, and we want to be givers of that grace. And may we embody that message. Father, we help us this morning as we prepare to come to the table. May we sense your grace and your mercy and your love. May it be what defines who we are. May it be the essence of who we are. And so, Father, as we come to your table today, may you help us to receive your grace. They would say, whatever our past, whatever our current circumstances, that, that you come to us in such a way that you can heal all brokenness, that you can restore you can take the wounds that we have in life and you can offer us new freedom. And so may we find freedom in you and may we find the freedom that comes by coming to your table. And may we recognize that in your kingdom, there's always room for one more at your table. And so Father, help us this day, we pray. In your son Jesus' name.